0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am here in New York City in Washington, D.C. We are delighted to have with us Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, who is where are you, Rosa?
1: I'm in Georgetown University Law School or Law Center. (laughs) Technically, we're a center, not a school. I don't know why. Why?
0: It's very interesting. Um, uh, well, perhaps we can explore that in more depth. We also have uh, Laura Rosenberger of the German Marshall Fund, who uh, has been with us before, and we're delighted to have her back. And we have with us Corey um <laughs> uh, who is a little bit uh, suffering from sunstroke, as far as I can tell, because it's so... I cannot tell
2: you how glorious it has been to have two days of California weather in Britain.
0: Yeah. And how are they taking it? Are they going loony?
2: People are staggering around. Like they've just been released from underground captivity. Like we're all blinking like moles in the sunlight. Um, And people are barbecuing in parks
0: and stuff. It's wonderful. Um, Well, that does sound kind of wonderful. Sorry to take you away from that. But I guess on the other hand, it's evening there. So (laughs) the sun will set soon. Um, You know, last week, of course, was met with a a lot of uh, excitement in the United States from the by the publication of the Mueller report. Um, And in one of our, you know, national media bubbles, Uh, The Mueller report was met as a great victory for the president. The other of the national media bubbles, it was met as immediate cause for his uh, impeachment. And uh, we discussed this at great length last week, and I don't want to discuss it that much right now unless somebody feels really compelled to. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about something that wasn't talked about as much last week, um, and that is essentially the counterintelligence side of the Mueller report. There's been a little talk in the news that there needs to be counterintelligence briefings associated with it. But one of the things that strikes me is, of course, the reason for the Mueller investigation in the first place was not politics. It was that a foreign adversary of the United States had taken upon itself to interfere in American elections. And the objective was to determine how that was being done and there was the presumption that the reasons that that was being done was to help us prevent it in the future so laura this is what you've specialized in recently although you've also covered the world prior to that but but mm-hmm. what what, what how, how's that going how, how's the side <laughs> of this thing going so,
3: um, I'm going to start with the in the spirit of, of trying to channel uh, Corey's tiara, which I, I cannot channel as she does, but trying to channel a little bit of optimism here. Um, let me start with, with one side of that equation, which is better understanding what Russia has done and, by the way, is still doing to attack our democracy. And I would say that on that front, um, we certainly know much more now, um, more than two years after the 2016 election than we did, um, than we did two years ago. Um, we know uh, from Mueller's investigation and others that Russia used a, a uh, sophisticated um, social media strategy. Um, parts of it, I should say, were sophisticated and parts of it were more like spaghetti being thrown at the wall. Uh, But a lot of the spaghetti stuck Um, to really try to manipulate American political conversation, debate, polarize us, create chaos, um, weaken us from within, uh, try to influence how people were engaging in the political process. There was a second effort that Mueller talked about, which was the hacking effort, which took two forms. One was the hacking of political campaigns and candidates. Um, And then the weaponized release of those documents, including WikiLeaks, but also through other intermediaries. And then the hacking of state and local election infrastructure. And um, uh, we have no evidence that there was any actual um, changing of vote counts done. But we also do have evidence, including some new evidence from uh, Mueller's report um, about specific um, compromises of different parts of um, the election system um, that were that were made by by the Russians. The report also documents um, some of the other tactics that we know were used, which is the, the use of, of financial tools for corruption to buy people off, to be able to influence our politics through um, non-transparent means, um, using a range of financial tools. Um, so you know, we we now know a good bit more than we did, and and that's in part thanks to Mueller. Um, I would note that what Mueller found was consistent and builds on other investigations that were conducted by the intelligence community, that were conducted um, by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence on a bipartisan basis. Um, And the last thing I'd note on the what we know piece is that um, Mueller's report, um, while it is useful in understanding details on some of the tactics and tools that were used, it is not, it is clear that it is not a comprehensive accounting of everything that Russia did. And I think some of us were hoping it would be that. Um, It's pretty clear that Mueller saw his mandate just from a law enforcement perspective and was looking at the aspects of the interference that could be charged as crimes or that potentially involved uh, conspiracy Um, and did not get at the broader, um, some of the broader picture of what Russia was doing. on the So that's the optimistic side. We know more. The, the less optimistic side is that we've done very little to actually address this set of challenges, um, and we can talk maybe in more detail about what some of the specific things that we should do entail, but the reality is that um, while there has been a patchwork of efforts that have been undertaken by different parts of government, by the private sector, this is what we call a whole-of-society problem that requires all players to really come to the table um, with on a bipartisan basis. Um, and this is potentially why I'm most pessimistic, is because, frankly, um, I believe that our partisanship um, is getting in the way of actually protecting our national security. Um, and it's very hard for me right now to see how, unless Democrats and Republicans can come together... To address this very clear national security threat to our country, how we're going to be any better prepared uh, for 2020?
0: Um, okay, well let me let me let me turn <laughs> first to Cora and then to Rosa and get your reactions to this. And of course, first question, Corey, is how do you think Ro- uh, Laura looks in that um, tiara of optimism?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, the tiara of optimism becomes everyone. Uh, and I have to say so I have not read the second volume of the Mueller report. I only read the first one the the one on Russian uh, election interference and I read it the exact same way Laura does. I didn't learn anything well, I learned one thing that I didn't already know, which was Jared Kushner's Russia Reconciliation plan that he... Um, that he tried to take to the Russians with the president's support. Everything else, we've known for a long time. And I take Laura's point that the, um, that Mueller was conducting a legal investigation, not a counterintelligence investigation. But the counterintelligence investigation has also been done by the American American intelligence community. In fact, one of the things that we've known for a long time and that Mueller cites in the investigation is that the intelligence community functioned exactly as it should have. Namely, they saw what was happening. They not only told the responsible elected officials in the executive and in the Congress, um, but but the media did their job too. We actually knew this stuff. Um, and so, uh, the good news of the investigation, well, first, i'm I swear to God I'm actually grateful to find out that the President of the United States isn't a traitor. because that was that was an open question for me before the Mueller investigation concluded. And it does not appear to me based on the information in the Mueller investigation. Or based on what we know from the um, from the counterintelligence investigations, that the president is actively working to harm our country in in an effort coordinated with a hostile government. Again, that wasn't clear to me. So so I'm hugely relieved that that's not the case. Second thing is I'm super grateful for how well the agencies of american government and civil society like the media have held up in the face of a blistering effort to compromise their integrity that the president has had ongoing since before he was elected president and my third reaction to it was it you know jim mattis deservedly gets a lot of credit for his in, for the integrity with which He conducted the Secretary of Defense's job, but I was actually a little, I was pleasantly surprised at the number of people who I don't think of as people of integrity. Corey Lewandowski, for example, who refused to carry out direction from the president that would have been unconstitutional, illegal, or morally wrong, right? Like, these aren't great towering figures of integrity. And even they had, if not a moral compass, they had a line they wouldn't cross. And it looks to me from reading volume one of the Mueller report, like that was actually really important for the preservation of American democracy.
0: Where do you get to volume two? That's the the really exciting part. Um, uh, Rosa, before... uh, Uh, I get on to any questions that come out of these two. Do you have a reaction either to what um, Laura said or to what Corey said?
1: I do. Well, I guess I have, I have two quick reactions. Um, Well, three, I suppose. Um, One, just to agree with Corey that, that uh, it's not only the, I, I guess it's not surprising that Mueller focused on the legal issues. That was his, that was his assignment and, it doesn't bother me that much that it's not in and of itself a complete accounting of Russian shenanigans, um, because I, I don't think that that was his job. But as Corey said, the good news is we've got that from uh, the intelligence community assessments and and to some extent from the investigating that Congress has done. Um, and I would second what both Corey and, and Laura said. The media gets some uh, congratulations because in almost every instant they got it right. Uh, and indeed, some of what we know about Russia was first reported by, by the media, not in any of these sub- subsequent governmental investigations. Um, the other two points um, coming out of Corey's comments, uh, I I think Corey's maybe being a little bit too nice to Donald Trump. Um, it's kind of a low bar if he's not actually a traitor. Um, and I would I would, Liken it, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani has been running around on TV saying it's not illegal to get information from the Russians. But I would liken it to the difference between somebody who orchestrates a theft and someone who knowingly receives stolen property and neglects to report it and is happy to use it for personal enrichment. You know that that's the role of Donald Trump and Donald and the Trump campaign. As far as we can tell, it's not that they orchestrated. There there was no quote unquote collusion, as Donald is so fond of pointing out. Um, and Mueller was unable to find sufficient evidence uh, to charge any sort of criminal conspiracy with Russia. Uh, but the the Trump and his campaign knew and understood that they were receiving information. That was intended to alter the outcome of the election from an adversarial foreign power. Information that had been, that had been obtained in violation of U.S. law and arguably in violation of international law, and they were perfectly happy to make use of it. They were they were saying, "Give us more. That's great. Where that you know, <laughs> keep it coming." Um, so I don't think that's any in, in any significant way less culpable. Um, and indeed, I, I would I would. I guess the third third point there is that, um, you know, to the minimal extent that people like Corey Lewandowski uh, declined to carry out some of Trump's crazier orders, there's no particular evidence that they were doing anything other than uh, trying to protect themselves against future investigations and criminal procedures. Um, but and I'm not sure which direction this cuts. I I feel like the jury is still out on on our own institutions. That in in some ways that there are there are things in here that you can look at and say ah it's all going to turn out okay. Our institutions are still robust. But there's still plenty of warning signs like like the fact that you know while I I, I absolutely understand the concerns of the. Uh, Democratic leaders in Congress about being perceived as on a political witch hunt, um, which is of course what Trump is claiming, has been claiming from day one, pretty much regardless of what they actually do. Um, But I understand their concerns about moving forward with impeachment. Um, On the other hand, our constitution gives us a very clear uh, uh, congressional responsibility in the case of presidential wrongdoing and the impeachment process is the remedy. And if the Democrats in Congress say, eh, we're not going to bother because we don't think we're going to be able to get the votes because Republicans control the Senate. So, you know, we're just going to sit around and talk about this for the next couple of years. I'm not sure that would speak all that well of of our political institutions or our legal framework if we end up in a situation where, you know, we have a report from a prosecutor that Contra... Attorney General Barr's um, effort to spin it pretty clearly says there is sufficient basis here on which a prosecutor could charge the president of the United States with a crime. Um, And we all just kind of go, oh, yeah, well, yeah, nothing we can do about it because, you know, too bad. Uh, The Republicans control the Senate, so we're just going to hold a bunch of hearings and that's it. Uh, (laughs) I don't think that makes us look so great. And it doesn't make me feel that good about the future of our institutions.
0: Well, um, that's more than a a, a small difference, but I, I, you know, and I and I have to say, uh, although that's really not what I wanted to make the primary focus of this discussion, that I have to agree with you. Um, I don't take much comfort from the fact that the president did not technically violate, you know, laws with regard to treason. I think the 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 Mueller report speaks for itself in terms of the president betraying. The trust of the American voters betraying the United States, accepting the help of a foreign adversary, um, celebrating the help of a foreign adversary, uh, later rewarding the help of a foreign adversary, um, but also obstructing investigations into the help of the foreign adversary and most saliently for this discussion, um, obstructing efforts to actually ensure that it doesn't happen again. And to me, if you look at this not from a political basis, and you know, on the political basis, I am wholly as people who follow me on Twitter or follow me on the show. No, I am wholly in the basis in in the impeachment camp, where I think that is the remedy prescribed by the Constitution. I think the obstruction described in the report is more than enough. Uh, I think some of the findings of SDNY are more than enough. I think the emoluments uh, clause is more than enough. I think that other investigations into taxes will prove uh, to supplement this. And I think that whether or not there was criminal conspiracy, there was a betrayal which rises to a high crime uh, in and of itself, even if it's not a specific law. That from the point of view of looking at this as a national security issue where a foreign adversary sought to mess with our elections and is certain to do so again, the thing that is most troubling is that the Department of Homeland Security has shut down the efforts and uh, unfunded the efforts that could actually stop this that the president uh, has said it's not really happening, which will demotivate people in his government from making it a priority to stop this. Uh, That, for partisan reasons, others in the GOP are slow-walking efforts to actually stop this. And so that brings me back to you, Laura. You know, what's the delta between what we could be doing and what we are actually doing? So...
3: I think, um, let me start with a couple of points, one is that, you know, as somebody who um, comes out of a lot of experience and and time spent in the executive branch, um, there is no substitute for leadership um, from the commander in chief um, in the face of a national security challenge to the country. Um, and so I do believe that um, the, the need for very strong and clear and consistent messaging from the president on this threat is, um, is acute. Um, it is acutely needed. Um, it's needed for a couple of reasons. One is for the reasons that you talk about uh, in terms of motivating the bureaucracy. And I can come specifically to the, the area where you, you asked about the, the delta there between what we could be doing and are doing. Um, two though on why the presidential messaging is so important and and, and really messaging from all of our elected leaders um, as well as the president's cabinet is that um, we need to send a very clear message to our adversaries that this kind of activity is unacceptable and will be met with clear consequences we need to essentially set out a declaratory policy I believe on this on on foreign interference in our democracy um, The president actually took a step toward doing that last September when he signed an executive order on foreign interference, which basically said foreign interference is um, is out of bounds. Um, It's a threat to our country. Um, I will require reports from my intelligence community and the Department of Homeland Security about whether there is interference in any election. Um, And if so, it will be met with consequences. Um, His intelligence community did uh, submit a report um, uh, subsequent to that executive order. Um, We haven't seen it because it's classified, but the public statement from DNI Coates um, indicated that in fact, the intelligence community had confirmed attempts to interfere in the midterm elections, as well as other attempts to uh, manipulate public debate in our democracy from other actors. So from Russia and from other actors, evidence of interference, we also know that the Department of Justice um, handed down um, charges against a bookkeeper working for the famed internet research agency, Russia's troll farm in St. Petersburg, um, in, uh, in September of 2018 as well, um, for ongoing efforts aimed at the midterm elections. So, clear evidence of ongoing um, interference. Um, unfortunately, despite that evidence, um, there have been no consequences imposed under that executive order. So not only do I believe that's a failure of deterrence um, in terms of not following through with the consequences, it sends a message to Russia and others, um, in fact, that uh, this is not a threat that we are taking seriously. So in some ways, it almost simplifies it. The, the last reason why this kind of messaging is so important to hear from the president and all of our leaders is that public awareness about this issue that is is really um, essential for building resiliency in the society. One of the things we know from European partners and allies who've also faced similar challenges from foreign interference is that building resilience is one of the most important ways um, to actually inoculate against the threat. But if you look at polling among the American people on uh, the question of whether or not Russia interfered as a factual matter, um, you find a, an incredibly partisan split on the fact. Um, And that's probably not surprising, given the messaging we have seen on this issue, where most Democrats will say that indeed Russia interfered, and less than a majority of Republicans will say that Russia, in fact, interfered. Um, So big challenge there. Um, Briefly, on what we could be doing and what we are doing and where they intersect, um, there are little pieces of things. I mean, the the news that you noted, David, about the Department of Homeland Security ratcheting back some of their efforts is true in some parts. There are some things they still have ongoing. There are um, efforts in a few other parts of the bureaucracy um, to continue to take steps to counter things. Um, there have been bipartisan bills introduced in Congress that would. Um, provide greater cybersecurity for our election infrastructure that would close loopholes around um, online uh, disclosure of political advertising. Um, None of them have passed. Um, And then in Silicon Valley, we have what I would largely characterize as PR-focused efforts to appear to be taking on the problem without actually dealing with the underlying challenges. The reality is that this challenge requires a robust whole-of-government, interagency-coordinated effort, Um, and that is not going to happen without clear leadership from the top. But we also need a real bipartisan approach to this in Congress. Um, I am deeply concerned by the partisan views that have come about on this issue, and the entire question of Russia interference has become defined as um, either attacking Trump or protecting Trump, um, and I think that that basically leaves our country completely vulnerable to ongoing attack.
0: Uh, yes, and 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 there's there's a lot of uh, expectation, I think, from experts in this field that uh, we should expect that kind of ongoing attack. Um, Corey, they're sensible people in the Republican Party. You're a sensible person in the Republican Party. Uh, this is a serious national security issue. What can we do to have a serious bipartisan national c- security consensus on this?
2: Uh, well, one is ignore the president uh, and and take seriously what the intelligence community has been warning us about, and uh, legislate that, uh, legislate to protect ourselves. And um, my understanding is that the, that our offensive game uh, is separate from our defensive game mm-hmm. and that our defensive game has actually gotten extraordinarily good at identifying in real time where attempts to influence, for example, uh, the 2018 congressional elections and to be able to blunt those efforts so I'm I may um, I'm reasonably positive that we will develop the ability to shield ourselves in cyber from these kinds of incursions uh, the the so if you go back to the Mueller report uh, Mueller identified that the uh, that the Russian botnets were were whipping up uh into a frenzy american political attitudes and they shouldn't have been doing that they did it in a clandestine way they pretended to be american citizens we have gotten a lot better at identifying uh actual the actual identities of people in cyberspace and so that will help to some extent. But as Laura was talking, as admirable as whole of government operations and overcoming politics for the good of the country, as as beautiful as those things are, we're not capable of that right now. In fact, we've almost never been capable of that. And so I'm super hesitant to say it requires the Elysian fields before we can find a way through this and i think uh, i'm i am reminded of michael corleone's wonderful line uh, when he said he wanted a bike and he he wanted to ask god for a bike but god doesn't work that way so he stole a bike and asked god for forgiveness and we can't expect um you know We can't expect God to solve this for us. We can't expect perfection in the American government to solve this for us. We can't expect the, the interagency functioning as a seamless whole because none of those things are going to save us. We actually have to save ourselves and the most important way to save ourselves is decent regulation of social media companies, which I know Laura has been a great advocate of. And second of all, Greater public awareness, so much of what happened um, is actually in our power to control. That is better education about where you're getting your information, especially if you're over 65 years old, because those are the people who are the biggest problem in this regard. Um, acknowledging, uh, allowing for regulation where you can't be completely invisible online if you are participating in political activities in somebody's country. Um, Better ability to see who is buying political ads and to force that information public. And the fourth one, which is in some way the hardest, is that journalists and even Americans like us need to resist the temptation to traffic in stolen property like the Clinton emails. We, you know, that if somebody robbed a jewelry store, um, we wouldn't go look at the jewels because we'd be participating in a crime. But that's actually what we did and what every American news outlet did with all of the salacious stories about the ins and outs of The stolen Clinton and DNCC uh, emails, they were accessories to a crime, and we all became accessories to a crime by the prurient interest in something where we should have taken a principled position and said, see, we were all tools of Russian intelligence, and especially the media companies, by propagating that. We actually need to come up with new rules appropriate to our new circumstances and not traffic in cyber burglary.
0: Yeah, and as as I'm sure when I get back to Laura in a second after going to Rosa, you know, she may talk about uh, once we get into the area of next generation cyber hacks and things like deep fakes, um, trafficking in, you know, the things that land in your inbox is going to prove to be even more precarious since it's going to be much harder to tell whether they're true or not. Um, But Rosa, before we get there, I'd like to pose the same question to you, which is what do we do about this? You know, for example, seems to me that the first thing one would have done in a normal circumstance uh, is what you did after what we did after 9-11, which is that you would say, let's convene a bipartisan commission. This is a big threat and it's going to grow and and let's try to reach some kind of high level bipartisan analysis of what we ought to do as a country and then do it. Um, that's just one thought off of, you know, the, off the top that I've seen elsewhere. Um, what what, would, what, do, what do you think we ought to be doing right now?
1: Yeah, I think I think that Laura and Tori have given us a, a great starting list of some things to do and and and. I don't know, I'm a little skeptical of bipartisan commissions, particularly at this moment in time, but who knows? Um, I do think, I, you know, I want to underline something that Corey didn't quite say in so many words, but but I, I think was basically saying, which is, you know, while, while it's particularly outrageous that this was done by an adversarial foreign power, we are our own worst enemy and we are likely in the future to be and remain our own worst enemy that... That one of the things that was most um, distressing to watch uh, over the last few years as all of this unfolded was that techniques, misinformation, and disinformation campaigns, sort of pioneered by the Russians, were quickly seized upon as as effective uh, tools by you know homegrown bad actors determined to sow discord. Uh, and aid their favorite political candidates, primarily, but not exclusively, those on the far right. Um, you know, that, that, that these are not the problem. The, the The deeper problem that we face is a is a information warfare problem. If you you know, and I don't think that that word is, is too exaggerated, not a Russia problem. You know, and and we internally are every bit as vulnerable. Um, And and you know, but but yes, I I mean, I think not only could some sort of commission be be a good start, but ultimately we are going to need changed legislation. And I was actually thinking about in the context of, um, you know, the what I'm teaching right now uh, to law students here at Georgetown, teaching criminal procedure, and we spent a lot of time talking about the. The exclusionary rule, the so-called fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, you know the idea that if the uh, government obtains information as a result of violating someone's constitutional rights, that they can't use it in as evidence against that person in trial. and and we we recognize that the result of having that rule is that you know some guilty people will go free. But we say, well, having some guilty people go free is the price that we pay for protecting the rights of the innocent. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I think there's, there's obviously an analogy here that when journalists do things like use illegally obtained information um, that comes from, you know, hacks, the WikiLeaks hacks and so forth, and say, oh, yes, but the public has a right to know, um, there's a kind of absolutism to that. And you know just as in our criminal justice system, we, we recognize that you know well the public has a right to put bad guys in jail, but on the other hand, there are costs to using information that is obtained through certain kinds of means that we really disapprove of and we want to deter. And sometimes you have to have a trade-off. you have to say, you know if you use information, if you knowingly use information, that was obtained illegally, maybe it should be treated similarly to the ways in which we treat knowingly, accepting and profiting from stolen goods. I mean, I think it's a really tough issue because and I and I'm not I, I, I'm not sure where I'd come down on it after after really looking at it thoroughly, but but I think at the moment, much as the the press decries the kind of Skewed and warped First Amendment absolutism that that has led our Supreme Court to treat you know corporations are people too uh, and money is speech and and uh, if you can buy a billion dollars worth of speech that's just fine we can't infringe on your speech rights um, that similarly I think that there is a sort of, of media absolutism that says we get to use whatever information we want to use no matter where it came from and if it's if it's the products of a crime with no consequences, um, and we don't think that in the criminal justice context, uh, it's not clear to me why we think that makes sense in a First Amendment context. And and I think this country is rather odd in the way it handles First Amendment issues. That there's a, a different kind of First Amendment absolutism, uh, you know, that got us to the Supreme Court saying that corporations are people too for First Amendment purposes, and that. If you can spend a billion dollars to, you know, speak more loudly than everyone else a billion times over, that that's really identical and should be treated identically to one person spending one dollar to to get political speech out there, and neither form of First Amendment absolutism has served our democracy very well.
0: Um, that's very helpful. I know you've got to go off to uh, teach a class or um, steal documents. I don't. Wherever you're going. I, you- I do both.
1: I try to do both I, in any given I,
0: day. I wish, I wish you well with that. We will continue on, but we wanted to wish you well. Um, uh, uh, Laura, uh, Corey mentioned the um, uh, the point about the role that the private sector plays in this in big media companies. And even, because Corey is psychic underneath that tiara of optimism, even underneath uh, uh, as, as she was saying it, I noticed. I, I, I noticed on Twitter that Carol Cadwalader, who is a, a British journalist who has been writing for the Guardian and about the hack the, and the other activities that led to the Brexit vote, gave a TED talk last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while she was giving the TED talk, in which she talked about the role of Facebook and these others and in, in, in these kind of things. Uh, she, she, she then found out that Facebook immediately protested to Ted and asked for a copy of her remarks and sought to, you know, essentially quash her. Um, it, Facebook's an amazing organization. Um, every single time they're given the opportunity to do the right thing, they do the wrong thing. Um and you know
2: yes their reflexes are unerringly bad for democracy
0: and 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 th- there are other big tech companies in that space and this is a problem of course because they actually understand where things are going and most of the people in government don't so how how do we deal with that. <laughs>
3: Yeah, Carol Kedwaller by the way, who has done amazing, amazing work, um, and, and anybody who cares about the impact of social media on our society and democracy should be following her work if they are not. She's done a great service for all of us. Um, so let me, I'm going to come back to the social media thing in one in one second, because I want to pick up on a couple of things that, that that Corey and Rosa both raised, if that's all right. The first is, um, so, I'm not sure if this is putting me in in a more optimistic or less optimistic space than than Cory, um, w- which which it's harder to be more optimistic um than her in most instances. but I, I I'm not willing to give up on the bipartisan thing here and and the reason I'm not willing to give up on it is because I'm not sure there's another way for us to get through this. Um, the The nature of the challenge is such that our partisanship is actually, um, a massive vulnerability. The, the Russians are trying to actually polarize us further. Rose is absolutely right. We do a lot of this to ourselves um, and we're doing a lot of the Russians work for them. Um, but, but to the degree that we know that an adversary is trying to make us more polarized as a country, that should tell us something. Um, and that should tell us that they believe that makes us weaker. And so for me, this is about this is actually like a strategic imperative. Um, And I recognize that it's hard, and I totally feel that in my bones, um, which is why I end up pessimistic on most days. But I'm not willing to give up hope, um, however misplaced hope may be on that front. Um, Can I
2: interject here? yeah, Yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I don't mean to give my fellow Republicans a pass on this. Uh, Mitch McConnell, in particular, has been disgraceful ever since the original revelations, and Republicans in the Senate uh, deserve to be judged harshly uh, for the failures. I'm just saying I don't think the country can rely on that as our solution because of their behavior over the last two and a half years. And I
3: won't quibble with that. Um, and look, I also think that that in some cases, um, some uh, some tactics that some Democrats have chosen to pursue also um, undermine our ability to actually make progress on these policy issues. So I'm not placing the um, the the blame on one side only on that front, although it may not fall equally uh, to the two sides. Um, a couple other just points, and then I'm going to come to the social media thing. Um, one is that I, I think that it's really important to acknowledge that this is a hard set of issues. And while I can be very critical, of course, about how the president's not taking on leadership on this, I've also been quite critical about how the Obama administration handled this in 2016. And as most of your viewers or listeners probably know, but for anybody who's in into me for the first time, like full disclosure, I was Hillary Clinton's foreign policy advisor in 2016. So I have a vested interest in this. Um, Wait a minute.
0: I've read on the internet that that means you are responsible (laughs) for this whole idea.
3: That's right. It's all me. It's all me. We we cooked it all up. We cooked it all up. Um, So, you know, the Obama administration um, knew parts of this, not all of this, parts of this. Even if you go back and look at the intelligence community assessment from January of 2017, it's amazing how much more we know now um, than we knew then. Um, and so I do think that um, the whole picture wasn't clear, but it was clear that some of this activity was ongoing. And I don't I don't believe that the Obama administration did enough. Um, I don't believe that um, the leaders in Congress did enough. McConnell, it's well known um, and much discussed at this point, objected to a bipartisan statement from Congress um, about Russia's interference in 2016, So, you know, this isn't just a Trump administration challenge. Um, The Obama administration faced challenges in dealing with this as well. Um, I think, again, some of those are that these are sort of asymmetric attacks that seek to exploit us um, in in areas where we're vulnerable or areas where we are uncomfortable with responding. And, you know, Rosa was talking about some of the authority speech questions that come into play here. Um, And I think it is really um, challenging when we think about how do we regulate social media. And as Corey noted, I have been uh, doing a lot of work on this front. Um, But I think it's one of the things that worries me is, in fact, many, you know, while the U.S. has kind of been absent from the global conversation on this issue, some of our allies and partners, um, uh, including including our you know our close ally in in London, you know, the UK, are proposing regulations that would seriously impinge, in my view, on free speech by targeting content um, as the as the key vector um, to go after this kind of activity online. And I'm deeply concerned that if the U.S. doesn't actually get our act together in this broader conversation that we're going to end up going down a path of actually clamping down on speech online in a way that actually would make Beijing and Moscow quite happy. Um, so that's a worry for me. And then um, while Corey noted that we have gotten somewhat better at identifying these actors um, online, I would say a couple things about that. One, I think that uh, the U.S. government has gotten better at that. I don't think the social media companies have gotten much better at that. Um, They are relying primarily on either their cybersecurity firms or the U.S. government to provide that information. Right now, that information is provided on an ad hoc basis. Um, and what we really need are mechanisms on a formalized basis, akin to what we have in the cybersecurity realm, the counterterrorism realm, the financial integrity realm, um, for sustained sharing of information about the underlying networks and operators that are engaging so that we can systematically take them down, not based on content, but based on the nefarious activity of those um, foreign actors engaging there. Um, my my last point on this will be um, just reflecting on some of what, what Rosa was talking about and, and Corey as well. You know, my biggest fear is, um, as I look at the 2020 cycle unfolding, I don't think we have learned the lessons of 2016 in any meaningful way. So while parts of government may be better and Cyber Command reportedly took some actions in advance of the midterms and all those little discrete things. You know, cyber command took their actions on the day of the midterms, um, which, if you understand information warfare, was far too late um, to actually have an impact um, on what the Russians were trying to achieve. Um, so, commendable, but a little too late. Um, the 2020 campaigns um, so far are not investing in cybersecurity in any meaningful way. We still have gaps between state and local, uh, state and federal officials when it comes to cybersecurity threats to election infrastructure no further than the story that broke over the weekend with Florida officials reading the Mueller report, his uh, characterization or account of a Florida county that was actually compromised, um, that their network network was compromised by the Russian actors and Florida officials are saying they have no idea what this is about and that they can't even get information from the FBI on what that is, huge problem there. And then we have the media continuing. Just last week, the New York Times ran another story that used content from WikiLeaks emails um, from the Podesta hacks. Um, that uh, didn't even note that the information was obtained um, through um, illegally obtained um, material hacked from a computer system by a foreign adversary for a weaponized purpose to attack our democracy. So I'm pessimistic on that side because we have learned none of the lessons that I think are going to be really important to get us through um, this next election cycle in a way that actually better affirms the integrity of our system.
0: Okay, well, I think that's a very uh, thoughtful answer. We're, we only got about a minute or two left here. and Corey, I want to give you a multiple choice for the last word on this. Um, you could <laughs> okay. you, you could pick a, a number of a, things to do. you could you can respond, of course um, to to what Laura has said. If you like, you may comment on, Um, how we should blame all of this on Obama, which is a theme that has existed out there the past few days. If you like, you can comment on this as a broader um, uh, issue that also affected Brexit and, and the rest of Europe and that it actually requires not just a national response but an international response. Or if none of these things are of interest to you, you may comment on... Trump Fed nominee Stephen Moore's multiple assertions <laughs> that women that should women not speak about be- sports <laughs> and should not be sports announcers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, the, so uh, I saw on Twitter that he didn't just say that or write that once, he did it a bunch of times. So it's clearly a bedrock view. And I yearn for the day uh, when presidents of the United States cannot get away with the disgraceful behavior of this president of the United States and their nominees uh, have to pass, you know, rigorous scrutiny about their suitability. Um, And the good news, again, I am. All about I I see the point that Rosa made that it's an extraordinarily low bar that I'm relieved the president of the United States isn't a traitor, but again that was that needed to be proven that was not an obvious fact so um, it also needs to so I'm celebrating that the minimum is at least the minimum. And I see that Herman Cain has at least withdrawn, and I suspect that Stephen Moore will be forced to withdraw, also not because of a president who acknowledges that people who are nominated for the Fed ought to be qualified, nor because it came to a vote on the Congress's floor and Congress behaved heroically, nor because of perfect synchronized interagency coordination, but... Public outrage is actually what forced this to happen. Um, And that is the arc of our salvation, my friends. Outside that, all is deluge. We have to save ourselves.
0: Well, public outrage is in big supply, and that's why we're here at Deep State Radio. And I want to thank both of you um, for participating and stirring up a little bit more of it. If you don't think this is a serious issue, you could read the Mueller report or you could watch Veep in which uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus accepts a veiled offer of help from the Chinese, and they um, cause blackouts across South Carolina and Lead people to be turned away from the polls, so she wins the South Carolina primaries. Veep is as close to a documentary of life in American politics as we have, um, (laughs) and suggests I agree with that. that, Yeah, others other than the Russians might be involved in this game uh, as well. Uh, In any event, please join us for the next episode of Deep State Radio, where we will continue on discussing the world and all the sources of outrage in it. uh, In and if. Uh, this uh, is something you want to continue with right now. Go to the DSR Network and listen to our other podcasts. Uh, or alternatively, um, you know, follow the people who are on this show who have a lot of interesting things to say. It. Uh, thank you to them, Rosa and Corey and Laura. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media.